0: Would you turn with me in the scriptures to Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. If you, have your, um, if you have your bulletins, if you've been looking at the evening service, then you know that this is, I entitled this, Reflecting on Work and on Life. Ecclesiastes reflects on work. I've kind of added some other things to that, and when I was reading the sermon over again prior to the service, I thought, oh boy, I've kind of thrown a whole bunch of things together, but maybe you can do that once in a while when you just kind of reflect. So I'm just reflecting on a bunch of things. It kind of gets thrown together a little bit, Um, but the point, I think, it will become clear as we work through that, so just go along with me if you would. (laughs) Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the verses 1 through 11, because he's... The author of Ecclesiastes is talking about life and what's the meaning of life and all the things we're involved with. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the places the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. So far from chapter 1, and then if you return to chapter 2, verse 17... He's talked about pleasures are meaningless, wisdom and folly are meaningless prior to this, and then he comes to this uh, about toil. So I hated life because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the other one, to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, well, it's the 25th of September. And vacation seems like a long time ago. Because things have certainly ramped up, to say the least, since the days when I was enjoying the incredible quiet of vacation. And one of the questions that is often asked of people when they return from vacation is well, how was it? How was your vacation? And this past summer, I answered the question with the statement, I could get used to that sort of a lifestyle very quickly. A number of other folks have echoed what they, what often is my answer as well, it's too short. I was hoping it would go on for a whole lot longer. Indeed, wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be great if all of life could be lived as on vacation? somebody said, that's what retirement is all about. And then I talked to some retired people and they said, are you kidding, I'm busier now than when, I was on, uh, than when I was working. So to have all of life, like vacation, is rather idealistic, of course. The way in which our society works, the way in which we, we simply couldn't expect to make ends meet without some source of income. And yet, I can't help but wonder and think about what our society would be like if everyone were in holiday mode all the time. And I wonder because generally there's quite a difference between being on vacation, vacation life, and the normal routines of work and school. When you're on vacation, you know this as well as I do, you can sleep in or nap whenever, you can be offline, oh, that's so great, when you're offline for a while, not pick up the phone. You can saunter about, not terribly worried about having to be here or there a particular time and so on. I remember a couple of years ago, we were on vacation, and in three weeks' time, we only had three appointments, two church services that we had to be on time for, and we went to a play, and we had to make sure that we were there. For the rest, there wasn't a single thing on our calendar for the whole time. How wonderful is that? And I don't know about you, but after having been on vacation for some time, it's striking to me how incredibly busy our world is and our lives are. And you'll notice that especially if you've been camping or you've been off the beaten path camping somewhere in the woods. In this past summer, my wife and I spent some time in Renfrew County in the Ottawa Valley in Eastern Ontario. And going there means going through Toronto with its tons of highways and thousands and thousands of cars. And then the further away from Southern Ontario one gets, the slower the pace. And after living in that slow pace and then returning to the ever-increasing busy highways of Southern Ontario, I was struck again, as I usually am, as I always am, by the incredible frantic pace of life in this world. When we left our cabin in, uh, near, in the, outside the village of Killaloo, we met 11 cars in the first half hour of driving. Just 11 cars. But then as you come from those little streams, those little roads, and then it the, the becomes bigger and bigger and bigger till finally it becomes a flood, huge river of cars in Toronto because you have to come through that city once again. And I don't know about you, but it's often I'm on the roads and there's just all these cars. The last Sunday we were coming back from Brighton to, and the highway is just loaded, loaded with vehicles. Everybody's going. The question is, where's everybody going? Where are all these people going? And why are they in such a hurry to get wherever it is that they're going? Taking time out for vacation usually allows one to reflect on the pressurized world and the society we live in. And noticing uh, the busyness of people in September, because it's September, and man, people are busy in September, only drives home the fact that we are in a driven society, or some say it's a jungle. It's a jungle out there. And that jungle, that drivenness, can make life really tough at times. Bill Gates, the chairman of Microsoft, is quoted as saying, unless you're running all the time, you're gone. And there's an African parable that expresses the same thought. Every morning in in Africa, when the sun comes up, a gazelle wakens and knows that it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will perish. Every morning in Africa, when the sun sun comes up, a lion awakens and knows that it must run faster than the slowest gazelle, or it will go hungry. It doesn't make a difference if you're a gazelle or a lion. Every morning in Africa, when the sun comes up, you better be running. That's the parable, although I thought lions were animals that prayed during the night, but apparently that's the parable. Patrick Morley, who was the author of The Seven Seasons of a Man's Life, quoted this parable and then added that that, that you had better be running law is not only the law of the jungle, but it's also a seeming law in our society. And in 2016, a lot of people feel like they better be running or they will perish. And maybe that's what makes it so very difficult for people to really take vacations, to be really disconnected from the internet or their work, because unless you're running all the time, you're gone. And so campgrounds now are wired, of all things, for computers. Like, Really? Do they need to be? But we're running all the time or we'll be gone. As a result, Morley suggests we have men, and that's the subject of his book, of course, he's writing two men, men who are mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually tired, exhausted by life, worn to a thread, beat up, bone tired. And we can add women and children to that diagnosis as well. So consider with me some of the things that make our society that, that what we have termed a, a rat race. And these are only some. There's a whole lot more. But first there's the relentless work schedules that some of us feel we have to adhere to. Morley in his book gives a very extreme example and it's a really extreme example. But I've known people who've lived like this. He gives an example of a man by the name of Michael whose job required him to leave town on Sunday afternoon and he'd be gone till Friday afternoon. He did this on a weekly basis for 156 consecutive weeks. One day, Michael came home and greeted his two daughters, four and two years old. They turned from the TV and said hello and then turned back. And that was the last straw for Michael. He quit his job. The relentless work schedules. It's not only our daily work schedules that keep us running. The housework needs to be done. The little baby keeps young parents going. There are papers to write if you're in school. There's homework that needs doing. There's many a children, family that uh, the children of which need to be uh, driven to dance class or soccer or hockey practice or whatever. Parents, children seem to be juggling schedules all the time. Where are you going to be? Can you drive so we can make arrangements for the sports engagement? How are we going to manage when you have to be there and I have to be there? And how is this all going to work? And sometimes when you think about life, when you think about what we're busy with, it's amazing what we fill our lives with. I'm so busy. Life is so busy. How are you doing? I'm busy. I've heard it many times already this September. And whether we like it or not, the busyness of life has consequences. Family cohesiveness is one thing that suffers. It's apparently now considered old-fashioned that a family would sit together and eat a meal. Who does that anymore? But if we don't do that anymore, then there's even less time for Family cohesiveness, family conversation, family devotions, families just being together. Our busy schedules mean that people are tired all the time and can't really concentrate on what others are saying to them. It seems that people have less and less time for just being. It becomes a cultural illness in the sense that we have this feeling that we must always be doing something. And if we aren't doing something, then we get guilt feelings. And those who are not doing as much as we think they ought to be doing, we consider them to be kind of lazy or out of it or or not quite with it or not quite up to par. Maybe not even totally human. In our society, we need to be busy and we need to be involved, it seems. How are things? Busy. And sometimes when we answer that, we expect a badge of honor. Wow, look at you. Well, what's with all this busyness? Does it somehow give us meaning to life? I have a sneaking suspicion, actually more than a suspicion, because I know this from the counseling statistics that we get back from our congregational assistance program. We get quarterly reports as you know, on what you know, people, how many people in this congregation are involved in the counseling, we don't know the names. And then we also get a listing of the kinds of issues that people go to counselors for. That's very interesting. So the things that we hear about on our seemingly increased basis, such as stress and road rage, and domestic violence, and hypertension and depression and suicide and so forth, are somewhat to some degree, all part and parcel symptoms of a busy, driven society. And it's not surprising. It ought not surprise us because in such a society, in such a rat race of life, something has to give somewhere. Tired children get cranky, we often say. Well, a tired society can also become cranky. And let's face it, many people are tired some most of the time so what much happens in life that we get fatigued and we wonder how we'll manage or to go on and the tiredness has an effect on all of our life on our relationships with each other and even with the lord and with his people and yet you know sometimes we must confess if we're really honest with ourselves that much of our weariness and much of our busyness is our own doing After all, who says we need to work as many days and as hours as we do? Since when do we have to go shopping seven days a week, all hours of the day and night? Who says that children need to be enrolled in every single program under the sun? And why must we go to every single event that is advertised? And what is it about being busy and being known to be busy that drives us or that seems to give life meaning? Well, I'm thinking, and I'm pondering. When you take time off to and really rest and relax, it only seems to drive home the point that our society, in so many ways, is not a very healthy one. And we don't think about that very often because it all seems so normal. We think about our fast-paced, affluent, spoiled society as normal. And that's the kind of world in which our youth are being raised. They're being raised in a culture that's not about to slow down, and that rarely slows down. And if parents are modeling a fast-paced, very busy lifestyle for their children, what sort of lifestyle are those children going to have? Moore's law states that every 18 months, the capacity of computers doubles. I wonder if that's still true. I wonder if that's now increased, probably. And so rather than reduce workloads, the machines that grace many of our homes have only increased our capabilities of an, as an even faster rate than before. And so we're going faster and faster. And I know here in the office we have it so often that we said, oh, that computer takes so long for that thing to, to work. You know, we have so sl- such slow internet. Really such slow internet. We used to wait for the mailman to show up at the door with all that kind of stuff. Even some of our fast food restaurants have worked at getting things in place to ensure that their already fast food is delivered to us faster. After all, who in the world wants to wait for their food? And what's the point? What is it we think we need to achieve? Why are we so driven? What's the end of it all? To make money? To live well? To be happy? Is it perhaps how we think we're going to somehow find meaning in life? So I pondered, and I'm pondering aloud with you. And as I said, it kind of kind of goes all over the place before I started. But the writer of Ecclesiastes asked the same sorts of questions about his life and about the society in which he lived. He asked in verse in chapter 1, verse 3. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? What's the point of all this busyness? Does it somehow give meaning to life? And then his answer is this. People don't gain very much at all. As a matter of fact, we gain nothing because the simple truth of the fact is that we may work like crazy all of our life, we may be heavily involved in the rat race, but There's no remembrance of people of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Not only will those who come after not remember him, but what also bothers the writer is that all the things he's worked for in this life can't come along with him in death. He has to leave them behind to the one who comes after, chapter 2, verse 19. Who knows whether that person coming after will be a wise man or a fool. Everything he works for and builds up will be passed on to those who come after him and there's nothing that he can do about it. And the person who comes after him will either take good care of it or he'll destroy it. Just like us, buying a house, taking great care of it and taking great care of making sure that the yard is beautiful and the whole thing stands we spend hours and time and lots of money making sure the place is in top ship, top shape, and then we sell it. And then it falls into the hands of someone else, who either continues the care that we've given or lets it go. Whichever way it goes, and often it's the case it goes the way we don't like, we no longer have any say over that particular piece of property. And when you drive by months or years later, you wonder if all the work that you put into the place has any value at all. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes, thinking about the rat race of life, comes to the conclusion that his having got caught up in the way of the jungle has had consequences in his life. He paid the price for his toils. He is tired, he's bone-weary, all his days, his work, is pain and grief, even at night, his mind does not rest, in chapter 2, verse 23. He doesn't sleep at times, he's thinking about his work and about what needs to be done. As a conclusion, he's more tired in the morning, it's a vicious cycle, and his conclusion, work is meaningless, it's no use, no sense, you don't get anything for it. You have to hand things over to those who may ruin it, you have to hand it over to those who didn't do anything for it, and you won't even be remembered for your work. What a waste of time. Why should we work as hard as we do, perhaps even denying ourselves certain things when our descendants may destroy it anyway? And So the questions are there, all kinds of questions, and the ponderings are there. And so what's the solution? If everything is meaningless or not worth it, then perhaps we don't really need to work. Maybe we can go live on a campground the whole of our lives. I suspect that doesn't satisfy, nor is it very practical. That's not the kind of life God is calling us to either. So how about trying to slow down society? Well, we could try, but I doubt we'll accomplish that How about if we don't give in to peer pressure and we live a different lifestyle? That would be great, but that's going to be pretty tough. Okay, let's throw out all the technology and go back to the land. Something like the Amish of this region do. Well, that may slow us down, but I don't think that's the solution either because they also have their issues with technology and they keep moving up as well as time goes on. Maybe we need to get our priorities straight. Maybe we do. But how do you do that one? Maybe we need to learn to say no to certain opportunities and certain challenges. That's always helpful if we learn how to say no. Stop and smell the roses. Maybe we need to do that. Take vacations. Good things to do indeed, but we can't do all those things 24-7 as they say. Maybe the answer then is just to spend our children's inheritance while the Lord still gives us the time to do it so that they can't blow it in some dumb way. Perhaps. That we draw the conclusion when looking at life, at work, at pleasure, at wisdom, the three areas explored by the writer of Ecclesiastes, that it is all meaningless and has no point, is perhaps not a bad conclusion to draw. As a matter of fact, that's the only conclusion you can really come to That is, when we do not consider the Lord as the part of the equation. So think about it for a moment. In and of itself, it is indeed the case that life doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. In and of itself, life doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. We're born, we live, we work hard sometimes, hours after hours after hours sometimes sacrificing all sorts of things to make a few extra dollars or lots of extra dollars. We rush around like crazy. We got that long, long list of things to do. And then after a relatively few short years, we die. Some at 90, some at 100, some at 30, some at 20. Who knows where we die. And we can take nothing with us. All the things that we've worked for so hard, that we've struggled for, that we've said they're ours, all that gold has to be handed over to someone else. And we have absolutely no control over what they do with it. They could squander everything we staked our lives on within the first month of our death. Can you make sense of all that? What has been will be again... What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun, says the writer of Ecclesiastes. We're born, we live, we die. The point of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, this book of wisdom literature, is that one does not have to hate life or work, and work and life do not have to be meaningless. But life can actually be enjoyed if a person sees God's hand in everything he or she does. Verse 24, without him, that is without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? You see, trying to establish meaning in life through work is meaningless without considering the Lord who made it. The writer tried to do that. He tried to find meaning and joy through the fruits of his labors. But God says, no, you must enjoy the life that I give. In his book, The Purpose-Driven Life, Rick Warren begins his book with this precise point. It forms the basis for the questions that he's answering in the book, namely, what on earth am I here for? And he begins with the point that life is not about us. It's about the Lord. And he tells the story of Andrei Bitov, a Russian novelist who grew up under a communist atheist, an atheistic communist regime. But God got his attention on one dreary day. Bitov recalls, in my 27th year while riding the Metro in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, I was overcome with despair, with a despair so great that life seemed to stop at once preempting the future entirely let alone with meaning and suddenly all by itself a phrase appeared without god life makes no sense then he writes repeating it in astonishment i rode the fra- i rode the phrase up like a moving staircase got out of the metro and walked into god's light without god life makes no sense, Bitoff discovered. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. The real meaning in life is found only in God and in the fact that he created us in his image. And when we live as true image bearers, that is, in a living relationship with the Lord, with each other, with the creation, And when we live fulfilling the task the Lord has given us, namely to rule over and to care for his creation, then life, then our work, our pleasure, and so on has meaning. Because when we live as he made us to live, then we discover that we're part of not our own life, but we're part of the kingdom of heaven kingdom which is bigger than just this earth, a kingdom that's growing and expanding all the time, and a kingdom that will last for all eternity. When we live serving Him, then we discover that our lives now are not dead-ended, but they have a purpose and they have a place in the establishment of that everlasting kingdom. Our work is to be seen as work in the service of the kingdom of heaven and earth, and it's to be seen in the context of how we may serve others. Like with so many things, we always need to have a broader picture in mind. And so maybe we need to constantly be asking ourselves the question, how does what I do from day to day serve the Lord and His kingdom? Do I, in my job, bring glory and honor to the Lord? And if I do, how do I do that? Do I serve others and advance the kingdom in what I do? Am I just involved in the rat race of our society, living like everyone else with the same goals and desires? Or am I indeed, as the cadet theme says to us, living for Jesus? Now, these are tough questions, and there may be no easy and quick answers. One writer suggested that work is the way in which we make ourselves useful to others and therefore also useful to God. Work is about, as we also recited in the contemporary testimony, work is about a whole lot more than merely bringing home a paycheck. It's more than something that gives us an identity. As a matter of fact, it doesn't really give us an identity. Our true identity is what we discovered this morning is in the sacrament of baptism, in who God claims us to be. It's more than just something that we do to fill our time. It's more than merely making sure that we can also have the luxuries of life. It's through our work, whether that be at home caring for the children, in the shop, in the office, in the fields, at retirement, whatever, that we fulfill the role and place that God has given us. And no matter where we are, we're called upon to be His witnesses. Without taking the Lord into consideration, nothing makes much sense because nothing is lasting. Everything will pass away. But meaning to life comes from embracing the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, namely the Lord Jesus. There's a continuity between the old and the new earth. Our efforts to promote a distinctly Christian culture, says one author, have value not only for this world, but also for the world to come. And that's so because Christ's work was not only to save certain individuals, but the total work of Christ was to redeem nothing uh, nothing less than this entire creation, including our work, from the effects of sin. And I suspect that a distinctly Christian culture is not one in which everybody is rushing about to and fro like chickens who have their heads cut off. I'm not a doomsday prophet at all. But we must heed the warnings that are given because if we continue as we are, we're going to be ending up with children like Michael experienced from his kids, barely getting a welcome from them even after having been gone for one week. If we continue somehow as we are, rushing about, doing this, that, and the next thing, there are some things that have to give somewhere, somehow, and it won't be the technology. It probably will be relationships, faith, and even lives. Life is not created to be a rat race. If it is, what would be the point? But if life is lived with an awareness that it's a gift from God's hands, and it's God who is to receive the glory, then not only will the vicious cycle of meaninglessness be broken, but we can sing with the songwriter, life is worth the living just because he lives. And when we're aware that this life is a gift from God's hands and it's he that is to receive the glory, then some other priorities will probably also fall into place, like caring for our families, working with God's people to promote the gospel, reveling in his creation, and so on. And when we live like that, then indeed God will receive the glory. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that's honest about life and reflections on life. Much of life seems to be so meaningless, just a rat race, just doing things for the sake of doing them. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us, that you would give all your people A broader perspective about work and about life. And we pray, O Lord, that indeed we may understand that it has meaning because we have this vision and there is this kingdom of which we are a part. Lord, there are many in this congregation who are so, so tired because life is so involved and so busy. And we pray that indeed they may ask the appropriate questions, that they may be honest with themselves about how much of that is self inflicted. And so make us a people, we pray, who have our priorities straight. Make us a people who understand that life is a gift from you, not something just to be thrown away. And we pray too, O Lord, that we may be appropriately understanding the different balances that we need to have in life between work and play, fun and involvement. And Lord, we pray that through it all, we may bring you the glory. We're grateful that in the quietness of this hour, we we may reflect on all these things, some of which which gets a little bit mm, jumbled and muddled. But nonetheless, O Lord, we recognize that in you, We have our identity. In you, we have hope. In you, life has meaning. To you be the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.